So here I am today with Reed Stowe, who's been traveling the world and has a solo exhibition up in Chelsea at uh, Paul Calendario. Calendrillo. Calendrillo yes. Gallery. Yes, so tell me a little bit about yourself, about the work, uh, how you ended up here in this space. And I mean, I have some specific questions, but I'm happy for you to just start. Okay. Hi, I'm Reed Stowe. And uh, she said, I just traveled around the world. But really, the truth is, I uh, recently completed the longest sea voyage in history, sailing 1,152 days without stopping or without resupply, in effect, departing the touch of the earth far, far longer than any human. Now, uh, the art that I've done throughout my whole lifetime has specifically been about empowering me so that I could go beyond where man has gone on the sea step by step. It empowered me eventually to do the longest sea voyage in history and my art in turn is empowered by that voyage. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay, so I appreciate you being here in New York after all these years. I feel like we've come full circle because the last time I saw you, we were in Chelsea, and here you are again in Chelsea. I mean, the schism in between time and place is sort of dissolved after all those years. So tell us how those, in, what did you do in between the time from Chelsea around the world and now back here again? Okay, so I was in Chelsea on West 23rd Street, on the popular frying pan pier. And the owner of that pier hosted me for 10 years while I tried to get what I needed to set off on the voyage. And I had been coming to New York since the early 80s involved in the art scene. Coming from where? Well, oh, well, my father was in the Air Force. We grew up traveling. By the time he retired, I was off sailing the world as a teenager and I came back home to my family in North Carolina where my dad and granddad had built a, a vacation house on the intercoastal water, uh, waterway right near the South Carolina border. Wow. So I grew up as a child uh, going there every vacation and, and summer and I learned about uh, boats and boat building and the water from my dad, granddad, and uncles. So I've been doing it since I was a child. Wow. My dad built some little sailboats when I was a child, so I saw that. And uh, I made surfboards uh, in, in the garage through high school. And then as a teenager, I was surfing in Hawaii, jumped on a sailboat with another teenager back in 1971, and we sailed the South Pacific. While I was in the South Pacific, I met these single-handed sailors. They sailed alone on small boats with no motor, no radios, navigating with old-fashioned sextants. Wow. And I was so intrigued by them, and largely because they introduced me though I had already been aware of it, mm -hmm. they introduced me to yoga, mysticism, gave me the Tibetan Book of the Dead, wow. which I read fervently when I was a teenager. It's a very arcane type of book, but when you follow into it, it offers you techniques to 
alter your state of consciousness. So right there at that early age, I was swept away by a mystical spiritual journey. And uh, those people taught me the sailing of, when you go to sea alone on a small boat, no motor, no radio, you tune into the ocean and you forget about the land and you focus on where you are at sea and if you don't do that you're going to die because it's very skilled and very dangerous. So I got into that very early as a teenager, came back to the States, went to Granddad and said, Granddad, I'm ready to build my own boat to sail around the world now and he said, great, you can live at the family beach house, we'll help you out and so I had a lot of support from my granddad and family for this. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you more in detail about the incredible voyage that I took on the little catamaran named Tantra. Uh -huh. But that was a very successful voyage and led to me having the concept of building the ultimate long distance heavy weather sailboat that could go anywhere in the world and stay there for a long time that because I built and it was low tech, I could repair it on the go. So the concept for the longest sea voyage in history began in uh, like 1973. Amazing. And uh, um, so I did go on to build that big 70 foot schooner mm -hmm. and uh, uh, started sailing it. And of course it was very hard work and everything was breaking and I was fixing everything. I was built everything on the boat for that ultimate storm. And I want to say that even in my building of the first boat and the building of the schooner, I was a very well aware of my shamanic abilities. And I had been reading this stuff to say, what is it? But I put it to practice on my boats and built magical boats and I had magical things happen. So by the time I was building the schooner, I knew I was empowering it with a special ability to communicate with me like you've heard boats do with their captains. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I built that magical boat and I made art through the whole process. I had figureheads in the boat yard, on the boat, from the first moment I was building her, even before she was a boat, she had figureheads empowering her and blessing her wow. and as a part of her life. Right. So that's how the art tied in throughout the whole thing. By 1986, I was down in New Zealand, ready to go to Antarctica, because I couldn't find anyone in America, the Caribbean, all through the South Pacific who wanted to go to Antarctica with me. In 86, <laughs> no one had heard of it. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I knew if I went to New Zealand, I would be able to find people that wanted to go because New Zealand is close yes. by for a jumping off point for many expeditions. Yeah. Before I went to Antarctica, I, I was titling that the first arts and cultural expedition to the seventh continent, a place where only scientists under strict military transportation and guidance could go. So there weren't artists that ever went there that were free to follow the spirit of art music and comedy, all of these things. Mm -hmm. But before I left, I said, what can I do next? And I don't really uh, go for these people who say, I, I'm doing a challenge, I'm doing an endurance thing. I don't really go for that. What I saw was, how can the next thing that I do evolve me and my fellow man to a higher place? Yeah. And that was when I had the concept that Look at my life. I love the sea. I never needed to stop. Everything went great at sea. 
I can keep going, and I can keep going far longer than any man has. Right. So after the Antarctic voyage, I'm going to do the longest sea voyage in history. And I said, how long? The record was 310 days. And that record means that as sailors built up to that in the 60s, and I was young and watching that, you had to make your voyage without resupply and without stopping. That was the, the, was the that? guidelines. Yeah. And that's really how you should go to sea in any boat. Know that, that you can take care of yourself until you get to where you want to go and not be calling for help or anything like that. Wow. So uh, I knew that if I was going to do the longest sea voyage in history, I would have to put everything on the boat that I needed and go out and without help accomplish my mission. So the record at that time was uh, 310 days. And I said, well, how far should I go? Twice as long as that? And I said, I don't know, three times as long as that. And I really put the numbers in my head and started to do my math. But the numbers all started spinning like a slot machine. I had that vision of the slot machine spinning. And they stopped on one and three zeros. So I said, OK, a 1,000 days. Well, I had a very successful Antarctic expedition. Mm -hmm. And then for the next 20 years, I tried to set off on the 1,000-day voyage. But of course, I was a you know, wild, independent sailor. And when I got back from the Antarctic voyage, I didn't have much money. But I came to New York and, uh, and, and promoted my voyage. Started to get press because it was an interesting concept. People were interested. Um, but to get all the things you need to support a boat and mount an expedition like that, it's costly. Yes. And uh, so the course of time went by and it took me 20 years. During that time, I did some very incredible voyages. I might talk about that mm -hmm. as we talk. Mm -hmm. But by 2007, 20 years later, mm -hmm. I was ready to set off and I set off on the thousand day voyage wow. from New York City, sailed out of New York City, mm -hmm. and never stopped mm -hmm. or came near land mm -hmm. or got help or resupply mm -hmm. for 1,152 days until I came sailing back into the dock right over here on the west side. Wow. And I stepped up on the dock and I said, look at me. I'm powerful and I'm strong and I'm ready to keep going. I still have enough food on board to go for another year and all my systems are go. I only came back because, well, my beautiful wife who started the voyage with me got pregnant along the way. Wow. And I had to drop her off in Perth, Australia. She flew back to New York City to her family, lived mm -hmm. with her family, had my child. <laughs> and I didn't see another human for 846 days. Wow. I never saw land for that time, over two years, wow. until I sailed in and hit the dock. And there, there on the dock was the big crowd and, and my lady and my two-year-old son I'd Amazing. never seen. Amazing, oh and my God. And I stepped God. up to finish the voyage. Oh my God. And so that uh, uh, sort of um, brings you mm -hmm. up to the uh, current God, state. Right. But, uh, okay, so after that, uh, we had, a, we had literary agents that wanted to handle me and so forth, mm -hmm. and they presented the book to publishers. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were on the phone, my literary agent, best-selling co-writer, and I with National Geographic, and mm -hmm. I don't know why they took the phone call, because they said, oh no, we couldn't uh, 
We can't do Reed Stowe's story. We'll have a public backlash. Why? Because when I dropped my uh, young partner mm -hmm. off pregnant mm -hmm. in Perth, mm -hmm. even though it was our plan that mm -hmm. if anything happened to her, I would keep going because right. I'd worked on the project for 20 years. Right. Hundreds of people had helped me mm -hmm. and I had a lot of money uh, mm -hmm. going to me to support me for the project. Right. So I said to her, I'm going to keep going, but I'll drop you off on a boat if you have to get off and mm -hmm. I'll keep going. But when I dropped her off, I got a public backlash and everyone hated me. Because and, they said what? And everyone hated me. I started getting death threats. Everyone said, you're the most terrible guy in the world to take a girl half your age to see and get her pregnant and then drop her off halfway around the world. You can't be a, a world hero for that. We're going to destroy you and take you down. Well, that's what happened to me with the trolls and a lot of people. And even my writer friend at the Associated Press, who had already done two stories on me and mm -hmm. we'd become friendly together, mm -hmm. she told me, well, Reed, I'm really sorry. Uh, I can't do any more stories on you because my editor doesn't like you anymore. <laughs> so I started to have a public backlash largely because of that. And that affected us when we got back. Well, we weren't able to get our book published in the initial rush of coming mm -hmm. back for the voyage. Yeah. And I needed to fix the boat up and rebuild it because it looked like uh, it, had been it belonged to the Flying Dutchman. <laughs> All the sails were tattered and torn. Wow. The paint was peeling everywhere. Wow. And uh, the boat needed a lot of work. And I, mm -hmm. needed, I wanted to go on another adventure to do that work. That's mm -hmm. the way I work on the boat is by... Uh, you know, sailing to a faraway place where I can get certain things that I need readily, like the wood, mm -hmm. and go on an adventure. Mm -hmm. uh, my partner is uh, East Indian, mm -hmm. so her family is from Guyana. Mm -hmm. They moved to Queens, mm -hmm. and her parents went to college there, became accountants in the city, mm -hmm. and uh, so. But they were from Guyana, mm -hmm. and we said, we want to go to Guyana because that's our next adventure where we will be able to get what we need. Right. So we sailed off for Guyana. We had a wonderful adventure there. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the meantime, I'm always in touch with my family and friends and mom, said I'm going mm -hmm. to the... Uh, I'm going to have a shoulder operation in the hospital. And so I communicated with her, okay, I hope all goes well. Well, she was 85, and when she went in the hospital for the shoulder operation, she got an infection. And in like three days, her body broke down, and she died. Oh. She was such a sweet, wonderful lady, but oh. I figured by 85, you have to thank God that she's lived that long. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let me ask you a few of the questions that I have related to the work, because now I know a little bit of the story. You did all of these while you were sailing. The, uh, this show was specifically meant to be about the, the art mm -hmm. that I made on the voyage. Right. Since I've been making art mm -hmm. all my life, mm -hmm. there was certainly art on the boat with me when I left. Oh, okay. So a part of it started before I left, mm -hmm. and I had a lot of things in storage. Right. But every, Everything in this uh, show has something in it from the voyage, some material thing. Right. So when I got back, uh, um, I told my sister, 
don't put dad in an old folks home, we're going to come home and take care of dad. So mm -hmm. we sailed from Guyana back to North Carolina, mm -hmm. tied the boat up on the Cape Fear River, mm -hmm. and for the last seven years, mm -hmm. I've been working real hard putting my work together and really coming up with my definitive style. Mm -hmm. So out of that work is the work that I've brought here. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is these paintings date from the early 70s mm -hmm. and a painting that I may have started in the early 70s is in a painting that I worked on in the 90s. Right, and is right, a painting right. that, that I worked on in the 2000s. Yeah. So every painting here has at least five dates of when I worked on it in the course of the years and every one of the paintings has elements from the thousand day voyage. Wow that's amazing and I mean the most obvious element I guess is like the rope that uh, is in some of the canvases that's on some right. of the canvases. There's ropes in a lot of them mm -hmm. and really these are the ropes the bolt ropes that mm -hmm. are sewn into the edges of sails. Mm -hmm. So my trademark since the early 70s when I was off sailing mm -hmm. and I ran out of little pieces of paper, right. I said, wow, I can paint on this sail. And I started getting sails from old boats yeah. and uh, uh, painting on them. And some of and these are that. They sails. are that. Yeah. They're sails that hang. They have right. real strong corners. Um, they, uh, in some cases, when I got the sails off of boats, mm -hmm. they're 70 years old, wow. all made by hand, stitching on natural can canvas. Wow. Some of the paintings are done on, uh, on Dacron mm -hmm. sails, so mm -hmm. that's where you see the ropes. And then, mm -hmm. in the course of time, I end up cutting up my sails, and a lot of those pieces mm -hmm. have been incorporated into my smaller work, work on right. canvases. Right. And so tell us a little bit about the imagery in the work. Like some of these are masks and they look like they can either be traditional masks or some sort of futuristic vision of an alien from another planet. Oh, it's really interesting that you said that because, uh, and that's a really good perception mm -hmm. because by what you're hearing from me, mm -hmm. you know that I'm a savage man who works with his hands and on my first boat I spent a year on the Amazon River um, eating bananas and fish and meditating and doing tantric yoga and doing wood carvings and my art then was very primitive influence. Mm -hmm. But by the uh, uh, late 80s when I knew that I was going to depart the touch longer than any human ever had, and I knew mm -hmm. my boat was a spaceship, mm -hmm. and I started reading space psychology, mm -hmm. I said, wait a minute, these guys are supposing things that I already know from my life experience mm -hmm. as a sea captain on mm -hmm. my spaceship mm -hmm. with small multinational crews, mm -hmm. men and women, mm -hmm. like they're planning to do for the trip to Mars. Mm -hmm. So I realized that I could contribute to the human behavior that would lead to our evolution off of the Earth. So mm -hmm. I started incorporating that in my paintings in every way and very well into my lifestyle so I could move my spirit from the most primitive man who, who knew how to catch a fish in the mud mm -hmm. to a man who was speaking at space conferences and, and, uh, and how what I'm doing can contribute to human behavior going into space. Yep. In, the, in, in 1990, I published an article titled Seafarers of Today Provide a Role Model for Spacefarers of Tomorrow. 
Wow. And I started speaking at space conferences. Mm -hmm. So what you said was very true. There's a very primitive element in mm -hmm. my work, and there's a very futuristic element yeah. in my work. And so I like to believe that that I'm a spirit beyond time, and I'm transcending time from the beginning, into the, leading the way into the future. Right. And then there's the imagery of uh, like a double helix or the DNA, or you see a lot of these spiraling forms throughout the work. A little bit, I guess, like, um, what would you say, lightning or thunderbolts, something like that. I don't know if you have, you want to talk a little bit about that, the wave forms, you know, you see it in a lot of uh, different, uh, works of yours. Okay. Well, what I hear you describing is a lot of things. Okay. So yes, I am using a lot of different forms mm -hmm. and imagery mm -hmm. in the work. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I'm mixing together a lot of styles. Definitely, yeah. um, uh, since I've been an artist all my life, mm -hmm. I've always taken to art history and reading art history. And mm -hmm. by the time I was 12 years old, I was already painting abstracts mm -hmm. and uh, looking at Picasso paintings mm -hmm. and uh, painting things that when I showed them to people, they said, it's this or it's that. And I laughed and I got a thrill out of people seeing all kinds of different things in what my paintings are. Right. So my structures and forms are not necessarily meant to be anything in particular, but to be able to set you up to see what you may possibly see. Right. But now that you mention it, you actually have some artist names in the show, like there's the Basquiat of you. I guess it's a a copy or something That's imposed right. in one of them. Yeah. And then you mentioned Christo in this work here. So I don't know what's the relationship with uh, Basquiat or Christo uh, for the audience. Okay, well, since you mentioned Basquiat, mm -hmm. uh, I was, uh, and I did come to New York, and I uh, got a loft on the corner of Broom and Mercer, mm -hmm. right in the middle of the art scene, mm -hmm. and started going to openings and meeting everyone. And so mm -hmm. I made friends with a lot of artists that were in New York in the very early 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Keith Haring, Richard Hamilton, Mark Costabi, all those guys were going around, mm -hmm. and Jean-Michel Basquiat. Mm -hmm. So in, in 85, mm -hmm. when he came down to St. Bart's mm -hmm. in the Caribbean, mm -hmm. I was down there, I had a studio set up on on the shore mm -hmm. I was painting he came over and uh, and we were looking at my work and I had my setup there with all my paints all around and he said can I paint something mm -hmm. and I said yeah sure well I looked over and I grabbed a piece of primed uh, plywood that was about two and a half by four feet mm -hmm. and I just propped it up on the bench in front of him and I said go ahead I stood next to him and he started painting he was looking at me and he painted the head and you know how uh, his eyes are empty there's nothing in them well I was looking in the eyes of the picture he was painting and it was like looking into a mirror at an angle because I saw his eyes looking out at me. Wow. And the thing is, he saw my eyes looking, looking out, out at him. him. And we had this incredible psychic Moment. communication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, when he basically finished the painting, he wrote my name above my head and signed it on the bottom. And he said, here, Reed, this is you. You can have it. So he gave me that painting back in wow. 1985. I love that. And... Uh, so 
the, the years went by mm -hmm. and I was uh, uh, becoming obsessed with doing the longest sea voyage in history. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I was still participating in the art scene, selling a little bit of work, but I wasn't financing my life in a strong enough way to move the longest sea voyage in history into position. Mm -hmm. And I had some issues and ran out of money mm -hmm. and needed the money so I sold the Basquiat painting yeah. in, in, in the early 90s. Right. And then I got my boat fixed up and I started to make more long sea voyages. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing with that, it was hard for me to part from it. Mm -hmm. But what I'm explaining is, for those 20 years of my life, from 87 to 207, mm -hmm. was all about detaching myself from everything of the world so that I could turn myself to the void, eternal mm -hmm. source that the sea offered me. Mm -hmm. So that when I went out there, there were no strings pulling me back to land. Right. And I had crises, moments where mm -hmm. any sane man would have stopped and gone back to land, especially if he would have kept his little money stash back there, that right. would have pulled me back. <laughs> but because I'd given up everything yeah. and cut all ties, and it was a long process yeah. and it was multifaceted, yeah. I had nothing to do but turn inward. and stay, yeah. inward and outward, mm -hmm. turn and stay facing the source being drawn to the infinite void of eternity right. on the sea. And all I can say is, uh, being a mystical person himself, I'm sure Basquiat already knew that his painting could help you in the future to carry out that work of art that you had in mind. Well, that's interesting that you say that, um, because uh, I have the copy of his painting, mm -hmm. which I just had printed out, mm -hmm. and I collaged it onto one of my canvases, mm -hmm. and I did my style all over mm -hmm. it and around it, mm -hmm. and that was because I wanted to show people, hey, look at this, uh, uh, the most, uh, one of the most important artists in America mm -hmm. ever, the most expensive artist. Mm -hmm. Why did he paint a portrait of me, write my name on my head and give it to me, when he didn't do it for all the other famous artists that were around him? Why did he do it for me? That's a good question. And uh, so when you think about that, yeah. um, I yeah. would say, yeah, the guy knew what I had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I had wasn't clearly as visible back mm -hmm. in 1985, yeah. but it should be now yeah. because the result is my work I have yes. here yes. and who I am. I'm the man who departed the touch of the earth far longer than any human. Right. That means that I have to be evolved on a lot of different levels mm -hmm. to be able to pull that off. And so I would say, yes, he recognized it. Yes. And I'm an artist that's uh, um, worth having a look at. Right. I think uh, what you started off with, the idea of mysticism and shamanism, you know, I really appreciate art that addresses these things because I think the problem with the art world right now is that a lot of the products that are being sold as art lack this mysticism or shamanism or this idea of something beyond the physical object. And, and that's why it's really strong the presence in your exhibition there's no other way for me to describe it but the presence right. you know um but let, i think you covered all the questions i had um 
So tell us how you actually made these. I know you said some of these things are coming from years of uh, work coming together on different cam canvases at, at different times. But um, for example, this huge one, or that one, which is, is not for sale uh, okay. over here. Tell us about this with your map on it. Uh, yeah, well, tell us actually, about that one. Uh, where we're sitting, mm -hmm. how you're sitting, mm -hmm. you've been looking at this one big painting. Yeah. So I, w I want to go ahead and okay. start with yeah. that. Um, this, this painting is about uh, um, 10 by 16 feet. Mm -hmm. And it's an actual sail. Mm -hmm. It is the sail that goes in the middle of the schooner. Mm -hmm. This sail in the middle of the schooner is um, almost like a steadying sail. The, the sail in the back of the schooner is a great big mainsail and you really need that sail to drive the boat. The sails in the front of the boat, there's two more, they balance the boat out. Mm -hmm. Well, this sail in the middle will end up being able to be kept up in the wind longer than those sails. And it turned out that this sail was actually up for over six months. Now, that's an incredible uh, record for the story of the history of man and sails on the sea. That sail was up consecutively in the wind, driving the boat, M me looking at it saying, go, for far longer than any sail was ever up wow. consecutively. Wow. So in fact, that sail is imbued with the magic and power of that and it has so much energy and mm -hmm. life force mm -hmm. in it mm -hmm. that you can't miss it yeah. and uh, and so that's why this painting is so important it's mm -hmm. the sail that was up longer than any sail in history oh. so uh, and it's, at least in recorded it, it will well we we know mm -hmm. that the story of man on the sea it mm -hmm. would have to be aliens or something unheard of yeah. that could have possibly stayed at mm -hmm. sea or aquamen or something because right, no right, one right. in the history of sailing yeah. can you, we know yeah. the history of sailing mm -hmm. it, Columbus did 40 days and that mm -hmm. was a big breakthrough people mm -hmm. don't didn't have the ability to live at sea right. because of the, they couldn't store enough water they couldn't store enough food right, that would right. keep them healthy right. and that it wasn't just where man's psychology was, because mm -hmm. that's a whole other story right. with as part of it. Mm -hmm. But uh, so that's the basic story of that mm -hmm. sale. And now the the sale, the painting that you're looking at mm -hmm. over here on the wall mm -hmm. is uh, is is for me a very important painting. It's eight by eight feet, mm -hmm. and when I knew I. I uh, had the show here, mm -hmm. and this was going to be my big coming out moment yeah. in New York City. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though I've been around, as I said, and mm -hmm. I've been in shows and had shows mm -hmm. and known a lot of artists, mm -hmm. I was still, it was still piecemeal with my coming and going from the voyages, but now I've reached my maturity and I'm presenting the body of my work mm -hmm. here. This sale is, uh, I mean, this painting is one of my most important ones like the sail that was up consecutively longer than any sail in history. Mm -hmm. This painting is irreplaceable because it has two big charts on it, which mm -hmm. are my two most important charts in my life that have my marks from how I navigated to all these places that I went. They're maps. They're the charts maps. Their yeah. charts are mm -hmm. big maps mm -hmm. with 
hundreds of markings on mm -hmm. them from all the voyaging mm -hmm. that I've been doing. Right. And when I when I knew I had the show, I said, here goes. I was thinking, well, these charts are going to go in a nautical museum because mm -hmm. they're history making. But instead, I said, I'm putting them on the painting. I'm yeah. going to make the greatest painting I can. This has to be my statement. Mm -hmm. This has to be my moment, my coming out in New York City now. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the, the first chart is, uh, has a date on it, 1973. Mm -hmm. And it's a, uh, a chart of the North Atlantic Ocean, everything above the equator. Right. And so from North Carolina, where I built my first little boat, a catamaran that was 26 feet long, mm -hmm. 1,400 pounds it weighed. And uh, it turned out to be the smallest boat to cross the Atlantic Ocean two times. Mm -hmm. But I set off with no motor, no radio, no electricity, and no life raft. And that seems completely crazy now, but actually yeah. these sailors I met in the South Pacific back when I was a teenager, mm -hmm. were basically doing the same thing. Not quite on boats as small as this one, mm -hmm. but they were basically doing it with that formula. No motor, no radio, no electricity, navigating with an old brass sextant. Right. And none of them could afford life rafts. It didn't happen like that back in those days. Right. So that chart from 1973, mm -hmm. when I got ready to sail across the North Atlantic, yeah. I looked at that chart and I said, yeah. And I, over in Europe, I drew a picture of myself waving my hands in the air uh -huh. and, a, and a, um, shouting out, hooray, I made it. <laughs> now, I did that before I left. Right. So I was already very well aware of how to program my life mm -hmm. to positively reinforce what I wanted to do through the power of my art. Right, right. So uh, when I did do that voyage, and I, 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 I could speak for hours about that voyage alone because mm -hmm. there were so many amazing things about it, but um, uh, by doing that voyage and having it turn out successful, I was then um, totally uh, in belief of the power of my art to enforce what I wanted to do and that I could do anything. That was, I got a little carried away on that. Right. But it was that sort of positive reinforcement that led me to say when I was ready to go on the sea longer than anyone ever had, yeah. that all I had to do was keep doing what I've always done and just do a good job, pay mm -hmm, attention mm -hmm. every moment and mm -hmm. do what I have to do. Mm -hmm. I would just keep doing it longer than I did before. Because yeah, I never really cared where I went. Mm -hmm. That wasn't it. I wasn't yeah. an anthropologist. Yeah, or yeah. I didn't care about where I went. What I liked the was the, the boat yeah. and, the, and, the, and being on the sea and, yeah. and, and the sea immediately making me feel eternal and larger than myself. So uh, in that painting, mm -hmm. I'm just going to tell you a couple things about that side of the yeah. painting. Um, I painted that portrait of myself mm -hmm. in 1973 when we sailed down to the equator. Okay. So under the portrait I have written, uh, this portrait I painted in 1973, follow the rainbow. Now there's a rainbow on the chart. Mm -hmm. Follow the rainbow to the bottom to the star to see the location. So when you go up close and you read that and you follow the rainbow down, you mm -hmm. see the star on the equator mm -hmm. and that's the location that I painted that portrait in 1973. Wow. So I'm moving the viewer's eyes all around by many different techniques. I'm moving the viewer's mm -hmm. eyes by color mm -hmm. and shape mm -hmm. and line, uh, and, line mm -hmm. and by directions written on the chart. Mm -hmm. You start here, follow this, and you wind up here. <laughs> so it's so kind of like a game. It's kind of like a game yeah. that you can follow. 
Um, and uh, on the left-hand side is a painting of oh Hong Kong Harbor. You can see the water and the boats and the men standing on the junks. Okay. Well, my dad was in the Air Force. We were two years in the Philippines. And, right. and when I was 12 years old, we did a little vacation to Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And while I was in Hong Kong, I made that painting of men on the sampans with their sails and the Hong Kong buildings behind them. Wow. So what I'm trying to say is for some reason in my life, not only have I been an artist always, mm -hmm. and my mom saved everything, so I have things dating back to the beginning. Wow. Um, when I was 12 years old, I made that painting in Hong Kong, <laughs> and I, um, co I collaged it mm -hmm. into the painting. So this big 8 by 8 foot painting mm -hmm. has a date that starts in 1964. Right. And so there's things throughout my whole life in the painting. Yes, I understand why it's so important then. Well, the, the other thing is, uh, back in the year 2000, from New York City, uh, here on my dock on West 23rd Street, mm -hmm. Um, I set off on another voyage called the Odyssey of the Sea Turtle. Now, I didn't have what I needed to do the longest sea voyage in mm -hmm. sea, but I figured with what I had and the equipment I had, I could make it at least 200 days. And, uh, uh, and I set off with my partner, the lady who wanted to do the thousand day voyage with mm -hmm. me, who had been helping me for years. Whoa. We set off to do the Odyssey of the Sea Turtle and the longest sea voyage for any man and woman in history. So before we left, I invited Associated Press to the boat, mm -hmm. told them the whole story, and I laid my map out and I said, here's the sea turtle. When we get to the equator, I'm going to change course and draw the head. I'm going to change course and draw the shell. I'm going to change course and draw the flipper. And I'm going to create uh, uh, the largest art that's ever been made mm -hmm. in sea turtle to remind the world of the ancient wisdom Aesop's fable, the turtle and the hare, to go slowly but surely instead of fast and brash. Yeah. So they did the story. Right. And, uh, and we set off on the voyage. And it's another long story, but I will say we succeeded. And mm -hmm. we came in after 200 days at sea. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this painting has a, a copy of the Associated Press story and graphics with the drawing of okay. the sea turtle. So you get that story in the painting when you uh -huh. get up close and look. Right. Especially if I'm telling you. So if I don't tell you these things, it yeah. takes a little bit longer for you to follow all the things around in the painting and see what's there. Right. I mean, and each of them has its own story too, which is uh, very fascinating. So I was thinking about the Peabody Essex Museum as you spoke about these nautical uh, imagery and stuff like that. I, I think that's how that museum started out as the first museum in America uh, around uh, things related to the sea. I'm going to do some research on it and check with a friend of mine who works there okay. to see how this uh, might fit their programming. We'll see. Well, all of my work in a way because yeah. when, whenever I talk about uh, art, mm -hmm. the art that I make, mm -hmm. or my um, mystical abilities, which mm -hmm. I found as a child and mm -hmm. developed in my life mm -hmm. through yoga, the mm -hmm. techniques that guide and open your mind. Mm -hmm. um, I was uh, um, always a practicing mystic, and that always seems far-fetched to me, to most people. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when I started talking about that, I find, I've found mm -hmm. that a lot of writers, because I have hundreds of press, because mm -hmm. my story is interesting, but a mm -hmm. lot of writers have mocked me and said, oh, Reed's a little bit crazy, but I'm going, no, I learned these things. Um, Writers are probably the least creative of all of the arts, I would say, if they're not uh, writing creative stuff, that is especially. Right. So what I always remind people is 
seamanship comes first, meaning I learned boat building when I was a kid. Right. I built boats and I built my own boats and I designed my own boats and I navigated with a brass sextant when I was young mm -hmm. and uh, my skills have the firmest base in traditional seamanship and in modern seamanship mm -hmm. and with that strong foundation I set out on the sea seamanship comes first I have to keep my boat sailing I have to keep water from mm -hmm. coming in and then I can commune with the larger forces yeah. of nature. Yeah. Yeah. So seamanship comes first. Yeah. And so that's why they're, they are related to the story of man on the sea. Mm -hmm. But then after that, um, I'm uh, in uh, practicing my most far out things that I can imagine Absolutely. that come to me. Absolutely. Well, you know, I was just reading an article recently, and I think Daniel Pinchbeck has a book. He basically said uh, not only shamanism, but the idea of um, all of these extra sensory or extra corporeal, corporeal experiences are now getting mainstream again. Whether you know you think of a trip with ayahuasca, you think of a trip with iboga, you think of psilocybin and mushrooms, uh, your experiences, which were mocked, are now becoming part of mainstream dialogue, mainstream culture. Because I think mm -hmm. we've reached the limits of rationality as a society, and we've seen that that has brought us to this almost end of destruction. So now we're going inwards again, and each of us somehow going through that journey, which you started years ago, many people are coming to it now. I think the society's evolving to catch up with people like yourself. Well, that was, a, that was a word that I used, um, was evolving. Yeah, that yeah we're, exactly. Um, that we, we're all gonna, mm -hmm. we all wanna evolve. Mm -hmm. And the process of us evolving, mm -hmm. what we give out and share are, are the lines of energy that help other people evolve. Absolutely, so, so absolutely. So that's, um, that's what it's all about mm -hmm. is, um, uh, uh, realizing that what we do in life, mm -hmm. we want to evolve and we want to take other people, people with, with us. us. And that, that's a lot of what the paintings are all about. And I will say that while I was at sea and I was strapped into my bed because the waves kept smashing the boat over, I was riding out that storm and I, I heard the waves crashing on the deck and gurgling everywhere. And it could have sounded like my bilge was filling up and splashing with water and drips were coming in everywhere. And I had to say, well, no, the boat's not leaking. No, the boat's strong. She's going to ride it out. And I laid there and I thought, well, you know, am I in the right place? Am I doing the right thing? Mm -hmm. And then I said, yeah, you know, I know that I'm the, the, the green sprout that's growing off of the top of this tree of humanity right. and that I'm reaching out into the unknown and I'm feeding back into this great tree things that it needs and this great tree is giving it. me the juices mm -hmm. to do what I'm doing but I'm in a dangerous position a little green sprout's very fragile can yeah. be broken and yeah. picked off by a bird real quick yeah, yeah, but yeah. I had to say well you know something could happen to me and something could die but I'm in the right place and what I'm doing is good for humanity mm -hmm. so I'm okay I'll just ride it out yeah. so that whole awareness and feeling was what gave me the strength to pierce the layers of fear that man has had of the sea over the years yes. and other men could possibly do what I 
did mm -hmm. because now I've pierced and opened mm -hmm. a lot of barriers. They can follow through those holes that Absolutely. I've made, but before that, they were too afraid and they came back to shore for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> but was the most dangerous part in the Pacific? Like I heard the Southern Pacific is the most dangerous sea to uh, travel around in because the waves are so high during storms and stuff like that. I mean, I don't know. Right, that's true. The Southern Ocean mm -hmm. has, uh, it's the wide open oceans of the world. So there's mm -hmm. no land masses stopping the waves mm -hmm. and, uh, and the winds there because of the nearness to Antarctic mm -hmm. and, and how the wind mm -hmm. circulates around the mm -hmm. world mm -hmm. are consistently the strongest in the world. So they build up the big waves. Wow. There's more storms down mm -hmm. there. So they build up the big waves mm -hmm. and most people have heard of Cape Horn, which mm -hmm. sticks the furthest down south, yeah. and the ships that tried to make it around Cape mm -hmm. Horn and that, that had disasters and were sunk yeah, and yeah, so yeah, forth. Yeah. So, yes, that is the roughest, most dangerous wow. place in the whole world. Amazing. Well, I am really uh, thankful for uh, this time with you, and I will be in touch uh, to let you know more about how we can figure out some good work together. Okay. Thanks, Thank Reed. You. Thank you. Okay, thanks a lot, Nicola. And thanks to Paul also for mounting this wonderful show. This week for episodes eight and nine, we have the stories of two New Yorkers, both of them sailors and both of them with amazing stories. One tells the story of Shari Deans, who was an artist uh, who worked upstate New York and in the West Village. She was the founder of the Air Inn. And the second story is uh, told by himself, Reed Stowe, who's been an artist in New York for many years and who so sailed around the world without uh, touching land for over a thousand days. Uh, please enjoy these two fascinating histories of art.